can't make the excuse I'm colorblind. It was yellow and green, or close together. <laughs> University students out here, you are highly blessed and to be commended. You have exams to, tomorrow or the next day, and you're here in church. That, that's impressive. I'm glad. That's where you should be here today. But thank you for being here today. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 15. And we're going to start our reading through verse 40 and end up in 16, concluding at verse 7. Evidence that demands a verdict. I have legal training. I'm a lawyer before I went into theology. And I want to provide some evidence today for the resurrection. But I haven't gone to Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I know the title, but I've never read the book. I don't have anything against Josh McDowell. I just don't have time to read every book that comes out. But I've taken that title today because I think that captures the trajectory that I'm wanting to shoot towards this morning. Let's have a word of prayer before we read. Father, capture our hearts and our minds today. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Jose and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jose were looking on to see where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they could, might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. 
And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Albert Henry Ross, whose pseudonym was Frank Morrison, grew up in Shakespeare's Stratford-upon-Avon. Back at the end of the 19th century, he participated in a British university education. He drank liberally from the wells of the Enlightenment that had touched Europe. But being a good Anglican, he went to church on Sundays, especially before exams, and he would recite the Apostles' Creed. And as he recited the Apostles' Creed, he would come to that phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And then as the Apostles' Creed continued to be recited, he would close his mouth and clench his teeth. For he would not speak that phrase. Then on the third day, he rose again. Morrison was convinced that the resurrection was a myth. And as a skeptic, a cynic, a doubter, a rationalist, he decided to do an investigation And in 1930, he wrote the book entitled, Who Moved the Stone? Some of you may have read it. In that book, he came to a complete change of heart and thinking. He now came to the stupendous conclusion that Jesus' resurrection, after doing all the investigation, was in fact true. When we come to Mark's Gospel this morning... We need to establish the brutal reality of Jesus' death. We cannot talk about resurrection until we talk about death. When we come to Mark's gospel, if we cannot establish with certitude, certainty that Jesus has died, then the resurrection is vacuous. It is empty. It has no significance whatsoever. Did this Jesus, this Jesus who looked out with his eyes across at Jerusalem, filtered with tears and said, how often I wanted to gather you like a mother hen with her chicks, that Jesus' eyes were shut in the tomb. That Jesus who spoke with authority and muzzled that little pea-sized lake 13 miles by 7 miles, shaped like a harp, furious with storm. He said, shut up, peace be still. And with authority, that voice silenced the waves. That voice that stood out of Bethany in the cemetery and called Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out of the tomb after four days. That voice now, on that Friday, was silent. Those hands that Jesus had used 
that had reached out and picked up that little Jairus's daughter of 12 years old and brought her back to life and had said, Talitha cum, in Aramaic, little lamb, arise. The compassion of Jesus that had reached out and touched the emaciated, disfigured leper, it put salve in the blind man's eyes, that had broken the five loaves and two fish and fed the multitudes. That voice was silent that those hands were clenched in death, locked in death, frozen. Jesus was dead. Mark establishes that for us in the passage that we did read. The brutal reality of Jesus' death is seen in four exhibits. Let's bring them to the table. Exhibit A. We see first the testimony in this passage of the woman, the Galilean woman who had followed Jesus. It's unusual for Mark to give us the names, the personal names of characters in his gospel. But here he gives us the names of three women. That tells us something about perhaps that they were eyewitnesses. Did you notice in verse 40 as I read the text? At the cross, the women are looking on from a distance. Did you notice verse 47? The women were looking carefully at where Jesus' body was laid in the sepulcher of Arimathea. Did you notice in verse 4, the woman looked up and the stone had been rolled away. These women are there to testify. They are the witnesses of what transpires this weekend. Mary from Magdala is one. Mary, who had come as witness in all four Gospels, as the first one to see the resurrected Lord. This Mary that came from Magdala, last year we were in Israel in spring break, and we went to Magdala. The archaeologists have been moving earth, and we found the oldest synagogue in Galilee at the foothill of the Mount Arbel, where the Jews would hide in the caves away from the Romans, and even from Herod the Great in the early days. There in Magdala, in this fishing village, Mary lived, and she was trapped in a sordid past. It was dark, but Jesus came one day and released her from the hostage of seven demons, and she was free. Mary, who, from that moment, Jesus became her life and her light. This Mary is the one who sees Jesus on the cross, sees Jesus at the tomb, sees the empty stone. Mary, do you think Mary would have allowed her Jesus to be surrendered to the sepulcher unless he was dead? Verse 47. The other woman that we have some clues about is Salome. The wife of Zebedee, her sons were the sons of thunder, James and John, and she had dreams, ambitions for her sons, and she had whispered these dreams into her two boys. Ask Jesus when he comes into his kingdom to let one of you sit on the left and one on the right, positions of authority. This Salome had seen Jesus on that Friday die on the cross, and her dreams were shattered. The testimony of the woman, Exhibit A, 
Look at the testimony next of Joseph of Arimathea, Exhibit B. We see in verse 42 and verse 43 the part that Arimathea, Joseph, plays. Crucifixion originates in the diabolical minds of the Persians. Alexander the Great used it. The Romans perfected it. Crucifixion for the Romans was part of their terror apparatus. It's how you keep the Roman Empire behaving themselves through the imperium of Rome, the potestas, the power of Rome. You keep your citizens walking a straight line by the threat. If they're seditious, they end up on a cross. We know the shame and the physical agony of the ones that were on the cross who after days their body would drop to the ground, rotten, devoured by wild birds and animals. We have here the backdrop to Joseph of Arimathea's request. A Roman magistrate could release the body of a crucified victim to family or friends at his discretion. I want you to note the reversal here in the Gospels. Peter, brave bravado Peter. Peter who boasted with bravado that he would never deny the Lord. Had even cut off the high priest's servant's ear in the arrest, attempted rest of Jesus in Gethsemane. That Peter who came following Jesus after he'd been arrested and put his hands out there by the live coals in the high priest's courtyard. And then he had been unmanned in the interrogation of the slave girl. And the cock had crowed and Jesus had looked across at him and he'd gone out broken into the night, weeping. That Jesus, that Peter that said he would follow Jesus has gone. But out of the closet comes this secret disciple, Joseph of Arimathea, a man of status who belongs to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, the executive and legislative body of the Jews. That one with stature comes and requests the body of Jesus from Pontius Pilate. He's from Arimathea, 20 miles away from Jerusalem, northwest of Jerusalem. Why get involved? He comes and he risks, he rolls the dice to be associated with the crucified one. Association by guilt. You want Jesus' body? Pontius Pilate might be thinking, are you seditious too? Jesus is on the cross because Rome has adjudged him a subversive rebel. What of his membership in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court? Will he now be estranged from his Jewish colleagues because they had adjudged Jesus as a subversive prophet? prophet? Joseph of Arimathea comes and he requests Jesus' body. He has nothing to gain, everything to lose. The request for the remains of the insurrectionist is a move of courage and boldness. He wants Jesus' remains. Exhibit C, the testimony of the woman, the testimony of Joseph of Arimathea, seeking Pilate's response of Jesus' body. And now we come to Exhibit C. We find here in this passage the concession 
of Pontius Pilate. Pilate is bewildered by Arimathea's request, Joseph of Arimathea's request. He's confounded and he summons the centurion. I wonder if it's the centurion from Mark 15, 39, who when Jesus had died, that Roman hardened soldier had cried out, truly this one was the son of God. Was it that one that came and assured Pontius Pilate that Jesus was dead? We know if we read Eusebius's church history, book 8, chapter 8, that when you were crucified, many times you would linger on that cross for two to three days. And Jesus is dead within six hours. Tacitus, the Roman historian, tells us that Pontius Pilate made a concession to Joseph of Arimathea. He gave him Jesus' body. This word body in the Greek, retoma, retoma, has behind it disdain, contempt. Pilate gives Joseph of Arimathea the cadaver, the corpse. Jesus is as dead as dead. Take the body. If you want anything that is proof positive that there was a resurrection, here it is. There is no resuscitation on that Sunday. Take the body, the cadaver, the corpse. Exhibit D that is led to our attention in this text. The purchase in the marketplace. We read that that must have been a busy Friday afternoon for Joseph. He goes to Pontius Pilate after summoning up his courage and asks for the body of Jesus. But he's also in the marketplace. He's buying linen, long strips of linen. He takes Jesus' body from the cross and begins to wrap it in that linen purchased in the marketplace of Jerusalem. And now we need to bring in John's gospel because he's got help. There's Nicodemus, that theological curious man of the Sanhedrin who came to Jesus in John 3 under the disguise of night and said, what do I need to be born from above, born anew, born again? Jesus says, you need to be born of water and spirit. That Nicodemus has come out of the closet too, a second member of the Sanhedrin. And together, Nicodemus brings a hundred pounds of myrrh and spices that would be 12 ounces, ours is 16. 75 pounds of, our pounds of myrrh and spices. And as they wrap Jesus' body, they crumble the spices between the folds of linen and in the creases. And then they take Jesus' body and they place it in a hewn cut cave, a ledge. And then they seal it with a massive stone, a great stone, 16.4 says, maybe two tons. They roll this disc-like stone into the channel, the rough, to seal the tomb, to keep the impurities within, to keep the grave robbers and the wild animals out. And the women are looking on, verse 47. Surely, we've established that Jesus died, was dead. And yet, even in these days, one can go back and read Curse of Blake, 
who argues that the woman went to the wrong tomb, their eyes so swollen, discombobulated and disoriented by grief, that next day, 36 hours later, they went to the wrong tomb. My friends, this is no pauper's grave. This is the sepulcher of Joseph of Arimathea, a marked grave, a significant grave where Jesus' body has been interred. The evidence demands the unequivocal verdict that Jesus is dead. Anything less than that conclusion is ludicrous. If Jesus did not die, the resurrection does not make sense. Close up the seminaries around our world. Put across the portal of your churches false, hoax, fraud. You must establish the fact that Jesus has died. Think back on the events of that day. The past 24 hours, the anguish in Gethsemane, the garden of the oil press. When Jesus had thrown himself in anguish in the stones and the gardens among the gnarled olive trees, and he had prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible. This God of Israel, this Father, all things are possible. In the midst of the lament, he has a sinew of faith. All things are possible. Remove this cup from what a shattering request. Will the Son of Man, Son of God, Son of David, Messiah, abort the mission of God? Yet not my will, but your will. He will drink the cup of suffering. He will not abort the mission of God. He will travel the distance. He's arrested in the garden. Think about that. He is shuttled back and forth in six kangaroo court trials between the Jews and the Romans. He's beaten. He's flagellated with the cat of nine tails. He's buffeted around and a crown placed on his heel, head. He is driven out carrying the horizontal beam and he staggers down the Via Dolorosa assisted by Simon of Cyrene. Five puncture marks on his body, two through his ankles, two through his wrists and a Roman sword has punctured his side. His body is wrapped up in linens and placed in the tomb. Jesus is dead. To think that Jesus stirred from a coma in the chill of that Sunday morn and then staggered out, removing that massive stone and then went and hid in the back streets of the world and perpetrated the ultimate hoax on human history, I cannot, my friends, muster that kind of faith to buy into that theory. It's ludicrous to argue that. If you want to argue that, then Jesus has not come from the most pristine stream in history, but from the foulest marsh. He has deceived us. That Friday night in Jerusalem, we stand at ground zero. Jesus is victim. And that duplicitous, prostituted priesthood of dynasty of Caiaphas and Annas have walked back into Jerusalem that Friday evening, rubbing their hands with glee. That upstart, that Johnny come lately from Galilee, 
That great pretender is now gone forever. That one who challenged the sacred cows of Judaism, Torah, traditions, temple, dead on a cross. And Roman power and its political expediency, Pilate that has washed his hands in a basin of water to try to absolve himself from guilt, that one, that Friday evening, knows another Jew has died on a cross. It is finished in Jewish eyes and Roman power. There's a real sense that the darkest night and bleakest moment in human history is that Friday, death on a Friday afternoon. And just as there was darkness in that pre-creation and God looked down in the depth of Tahu Wabahu, the stillness and the deep and the chaos, and God came and he brought order to that chaos and he gave us creation in a universe. Now he will come to Skull Hill on this next Friday and he will recreate, he will breathe his spirit anew into his son. That Sunday morning. Some of you may have read, I read it in Africa. That little book, I was 12 years old, Our Town. That classic, loved it. Written by, anyone know? Thornton Wilder. What do you know about his brother Amos? His brother Amos played tennis at Wimbledon in 1922. His younger brother was secretary to Albert Schweitzer. Amos Wilder became a professor of New Testament at Harvard University. He wrote a poem called The Hard Death. And in this poem, he's got these provocative lines when we look at the cross, accept no mitigation, but be instructed at the null point. The zero breeds new algebras. Can you do math without a zero? There is darkness, there's death on that Friday afternoon, but on that Sunday, there will be a new algebra. There will be resurrection. And so we come to look at that as we close out this morning. God will take that moment of human despair, that Friday when Jesus appears to be victim, and God will transpose history into a new key, and Jesus will be victor on that day of resurrection that Sunday. If the cross represents God abandoned by God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then the resurrection represents the death of death and the conquering of the cosmic foul powers of evil. Mark paints a stunning portrait of the resurrection for us with simplicity in the economy of views, of language. Quickly, four evidences. The time notation. Do you see it in chapter 16? The time notation. 16.1. When the Sabbath was over. In Greek, that's a genitive absolute, which means it's loosely constructed to the sentences. That genitive absolute tells me much. It tells me that 14, uh, 1547, that last verse of that chapter, is connected to 16, chapter 16. The resurrection is not an isolated event. 
the one who died, who was crucified, who was buried in the tomb in 15, is the one who is raised in 16. That genitive absolute shows me that the Jewish Sabbath is this bridge, this in-between event that holds together the crucifixion, his death, his burial, and the resurrection. The time notation is significant. We also see here that this is the Sabbath that's over. That Jewish Sabbath that came between crucifixion and resurrection, in a real sense it is over. There will be a new Shabbat. A new Sabbath in the New Testament, in the Christian world, the first day of the week, Sunday, the day of resurrection, Anastasius Day. There's also the reference in time to verse 2, very early, very early. Alexander McLaren, the great Scottish preacher, says, Sorrow wakens early, and love is impatient to pay its tribute. The woman, can you see them as the purple hue of the rising sun peeping over the eastern horizon as they shuffle together over the cobbled stones towards the cemetery. They come to the tomb. Time notation. Second, the testimony of the woman again. The Jewish rabbis don't have much confidence in women back in those days. It was patriarchal. It was androcentric. Woman's credibility in a court of law was questioned That's an important point. Woman's credibility in a court of law was questioned. The Jewish male would pray every day, the Barakoth. Thank you, God, you didn't make me a Gentile, a heathen. You didn't make me a slave, and you didn't make me a woman. Paul and Jesus changed that ethic and come to a more egalitarian approach with dignity and worth. But when we look at this text, we see that a Jewish woman's testimony has no credibility. Celsus, the pagan critic, of Christianity needled Origen, the early church father, by talking about the gossip of the woman at the tomb. Listen carefully to this point. If the resurrection was a figment of the imagination of the early church and the event fabricated, Why would the writers have used woman as the couriers of the news of the resurrection? Why, if this is made up in fantasy and tooth fairy stuff, would those gospel writers in the early church have used woman as the couriers of the news of the resurrection? Put men there who are credible if you're trying to sell your story. Why are the women there? If you want to look at the acute skepticism of the testimony of woman, look at Luke 24, verse 11. The woman go back from the empty tomb, and Peter and John and the disciples who were hiding out say, you're talking idle nonsense. You're you're talking false stories, nonsense, idle talk. And they run to the tomb to verify that it is empty. Unless women were present at the resurrection... The authors of the gospel would never have placed them as couriers of the good news. But isn't that how God works? God comes and he sends the angels, the telegram boys from heaven. And at the annunciation of the word become flesh, at the first Noel, at Bethlehem, where are the people that hear? Who are the recipients of the news first? Shepherds, smelly shepherds, outcast shepherds. 
who cannot testify in a court of law. At the beginning of Jesus' life, you have the shepherds, outsiders, marginalized. At the end of Jesus' life, who sees the empty tomb and the risen Jesus in John 20? Mary, a woman whose testimony will be questioned. Third, Exhibit C. Look at the practical oversight. The women are running towards or shuffling towards the tomb that early Sabbath morning, Sunday morning. They're carrying anxiety and they're carrying their spices. They're going to finish the job. They come into the tomb and as they come to the tomb, they realize that they have forgotten who's going to remove the stone so that they can finish the task that was begun on Friday. Who will move the stone? All their preparations leave them unprepared for the reality that they will encounter. What they intend to do is to have a terminal visit, but it's not. It's a commencement of a new day. The zero will breed new algebra. In a typical play, the woman come looking for the secured body of Jesus in the tomb, and it's gone. The tomb is empty. And in deliberate mock and irony in the gospel, the living are looking for the dead, and the crucified one is alive. Resurrection. The zero breeds new algebra. Exhibit D. The shattering truth. They go into the tomb, the woman, and they see this angel this young man to the right of the tomb in white, and he says, he censures them, and he says, what are you here for? He doesn't special plead. He doesn't elaborate. He gives them one sentence. He has risen. He is not here. Go back and read Jesus' passion predictions in a theme of Mark's gospel on the way. Jesus on the way in 831, 931, 10.33 says, The Son of Man will go up to Jerusalem and be killed, and on the third day will be raised. Go back and read the entrance into the Gethsemane Garden in Mark 14, 26 and 27 and 28. Jesus says, When I'm raised again, I'll meet you in Galilee. The shattering truth. He is alive. I close. Two weeks from now, nearly now, Monday, I'll be in London taking Carson Newman students for this 10th trip in a row to study for six hours and to do some missions and to see parts of Cape Town in South Africa. When we go to London, we always travel through there we always go to Westminster Abbey and the Houses of Parliament, and from a stone's throw away, you can see Westminster Hall. One of the greatest British preachers in his generation was W.E. Sangster. He provided this Westminster Hall during the blitzkrieg of the Second World War, down in the bowels and the vaults of that building while the German Luftwaffe dropped its bombs. There in the basement, people would huddle in and find security in London. And on the Sabbath, they would come up and they would have the Lord's Supper and they would read the 23rd Psalm. He prepared a table for me in the midst of mine enemies as the bombs were falling. 
Well, that sangster who saw and nurtured his flock through the Second World War found out that he had muscular dystrophy in 1958. His body began to seize up and not move. He lost his voice. Literally months before he died in 1960, that last Easter of his life, he woke up and he scribbled. He had no voice. He wrote and scribbled on a piece of paper to his daughter. How terrible to wake up on Easter morning and not be able to shout, He is risen. My friends, how much more terrible is it for us to have a voice, to have a life, and not to live it out with that knowledge and with that news, that joy that he is risen indeed. Amen. And amen. He's alive. Let's live like it.